Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host for today, Brady Josephson, and today we have a awesome long chat uh, with Joel Solomon. So Joel is the founding partner of a company called Renewal Funds. It's actually Canada's largest mission venture capital firm. It's just about $100 million investing in mission-oriented companies. He's also got a long background in philanthropy. And we talk about both those sides. How do you invest kind of with purpose and mission? And then how does that apply to philanthropy? How do you take a missional approach or a more venture capital approach to philanthropy? And we dive into a little bit of his experience doing a spend down with a large public foundation, kind of spending down their endowment and investing in projects. And so we cover all that. Uh, we get into like um, his book, Clean Money uh, Revolution, and what is clean money? How can we use money um, as a kind of our vote of what we believe and how does it apply to the world of giving and philanthropy? And uh, a bunch of other subjects in there. But Joel is incredibly, incredibly smart and wise. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Joel. Thank you for coming on the show. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, philanthropy and investing for good in your book, The Clean Money Revolution. But can you just share a little bit about your journey? Because it's pretty fascinating. Like you were kind of working with Jimmy Carter and then you ended up like recording orcas, like fill in the gaps a little bit for us before we, we jump into what you're doing today. Two key points of context. One, 50s and 60s in the south of the United States. Uh, lots of turbulence and uh, Jim Crow, civil rights era, assassinations, Vietnam War. Hmm. Um, and I was questioning a lot of things. Um, not too many years after I left uh, university and was starting to uh, think about what I was going to do with my life more, I got diagnosed with a genetic kidney disease. Hmm. And the diagnosis that came, it came through my father's family was you could live a long time or you could die soon and there's nothing you could do about it. Hmm. And that caused me to think a lot and really consider what was the purpose of my life. What sure. if it is short? What do I care about from my deathbed and lots of those kinds of concepts. And that led me to take time to break out of what was kind of prescribed for me to go into the family business of shopping malls. And I, um, I really wanted to, see what was going to be the meaning of my life and mm. what was I going to do with it. And so that led me on some interesting journeys of exploration, thinking about things, ex seeing other models. And uh, so that's the, that's the simple story. Uh, it's quite a privilege to be able to take time to think about what you're going to do with your life. I, I mm. hope that as many people as possible have that chance. Yeah. And it's not like the first thing you tried was the one that stuck, right? It took, it took a few different tries and some wandering to figure out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder, too, as people start their careers <clears throat> thinking like, oh, you know, I have to have it all, you know, figured out. Or, and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not really how it works for most of us. And early on, I got the idea that my job was to support other people, hmm. like to be around visionaries or people that were doing something I was really inspired by. And I figured just maybe instinctively that they uh, 
like in the case of uh, working at an orca research laboratory in a remote location, <laughs> well, somebody needs to get the firewood and bring in the soil for the gardens out of the forest and haul up uh, seaweed from the beach to make compost <laughs> with and all that kind of stuff. And so I really liked the idea of some kind of uh, serve people who were doing things I was really impressed and inspired with. And that would be my contribution. That was really my first decade and a half of uh, adulthood. Hmm. Uh, I've heard some people give advice, you know, like one of the best things you can do, especially early on is like go be someone's executive assistant or just find someone that, you know, you really respect or admire and just be be around them. (laughs) You know, it's one of the best educations you can have. Is that something that you kind of learned along the way? Yes, I think it's a really good idea. I often think now, now that I've accumulated a lot of experiences and maybe some skills, and uh, <laughs> you know, learned how to do a few things, I realize, and I have the longing, I'm now, I'll be 64 next week. And I can feel the desire to want to pass on some of the incredible things I've gotten to learn and the insights I've had and the people I've gotten to meet. And I I think a lot about what's the right way to uh, be an elder, what's the <laughs> right way to pass on things. And so there's moments where I, I think to myself, wow, what a job. I would have loved this job mm. to just help me do things, check out what I was doing because I have an right. incre- this, this day and age provides us so much opportunity for yeah. diverse exposures and things. So Yeah. And is that maybe partly why you wrote your book, The Clean Money Revolution, is like how do I pass on some of what, you know, I've learned and journeyed through? Is that a big reason for the book? Bingo. Bingo. (laughs) I I turned 60 and I thought to myself, wow, uh, a lot of stuff is just going to turn to dust with me Hmm. if I don't pass it on in some way. And I felt like because I'd had a unique set of experiences and the times are demanding more, uh, let's say, maybe complexity, uh, nuance, uh, really thinking about bigger issues and how do we fit in it all? And it, it, it just started to feel very important to me that, uh, by the way, my friend gave me her kidney 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Hmm. And so that's, that's what happened with that story. And, and it's important to say that because it really kicked me even further into the responsibility to share right, and pass sure. things on. So uh, the book was a way to have a chance to get a platform, mm-hmm. uh, be, be a bit of a preacher Mm-hmm. Uh, say say the things I care about and and hope that I could stimulate and support uh, other people, younger, older, any age. Yeah, uh, to think about things in particular about money. Yeah, well let's let's get into it. let's talk about money. Um, yeah. well, let's start with maybe like what is clean money? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people don't even maybe know the term. I don't know exactly how I define it. So you know what is clean money? Surprisingly, that is a term that no one was using that I could find. Hmm. And including I could get the use of the of those two words together, which I was really surprised at because you hear all kinds of things about dark money, dirty money. Yeah, right. You know, all the illegal money, uh, all kinds of bad things about money. It's probably a commentary and, in itself right there. <laughs> that's right. And, and what I'd come to uh, believe through my years, I guess I have to call it a career, through my years uh, was that money is – is a neutral substance. Uh, It represents the idea of what we might be able to make use of, excuse me, 
to make use of uh, that comes from the natural ecosystems or from human labor. And so it's a representation that, me, that, that is about that, that we can then use to exchange for goods and services and then eventually amass it into uh, great fortunes if we're, uh, if we're driven and fortunate that way. Um, so I, what came clear to me first for myself is that I didn't really know what the history of money that came to me was mm. or what happens to it when I spend it, invest it, put it in a bank, uh, pay someone, buy something. And I realized that there is actually a long story about that money. <clears throat> that story may go back generations mm. and it may go forward for generations and it holds within it <clears throat> the history of everyone that's touched it mm. and all the things that were done to create it or trade it and such. So I, that, that understanding or that point of view is, is, is lost in modern times. We just think about money in terms of how much do I have, <laughs> what I could do with it, how am I going to get more of it, maybe how am I going to pass it on to kids, how am I going to do mm -hmm. good things in the world with it. But what happens is we get put to sleep by that because the, the central satisfaction, first of all, of having enough money that you can take care of your family and, and uh, things that you care about, then having enough that you can contribute to society a bit extra. Mm -hmm. And then there's a point where it gets bigger than you can even really do anything with. Mm -hmm. But yet we seem compelled then to double it. Hmm. and double it again as kind of a meaning of life. Right. And that struck me as an odd meaning of life. Uh, it, this, this, this substance has a lot of power, and it can express what we deeply believe about and care about. And I've come to uh, be a strong advocate that this matters, that when we reach our deathbed, we want to be able to look back over our lives and think about our relationship with money in a good way. Yeah. We want to pass on good values to other generations and to, uh, we want to do transactions that are fair and honest with people mm -hmm. and respect them. And so you can go on deeper and deeper into looking at money and how little it's looked at. So back to clean money, clean money is a wake up call. I don't know for sure what clean money is. I, I think cleaner money might be more realistic, but mm -hmm. it is a, it's a bar. Uh, I would like my relationships around money, how, they, how it comes to me and how I use it to represent who I am and what I care about in the world. Hmm. And that's my, uh, that's my shot at clean money. Yeah, man, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I think that the uh, idea that we kind of like vote with our wallets or, you know, like that idea that whether we do that intentionally or not, that's what's happening. <laughs> that's and right. I think, you know, oftentimes um, when we talk about um, charitable giving, which is more of my world or our worlds, the biggest threat to me is consumerism increasingly. Right. And the reason why I think giving is so important is because it says what we believe about our funds that, Money That's isn't right. the end-all, be-all. We'll give it away and get nothing back. <laughs> we'll give it away and help other people. Yes, we benefit. It makes us happy. But there's this pretty 
you know, it's a pretty radically different way to use money in terms of giving it away as opposed to buying stuff for yourself. And I think that's that's a big battleground for me personally. <laughs> and yes. I think the more that we, you know, cede territory, I think it's it's detrimental to society. So, you know, that's one element of, of clean money. We'll talk about, you know, philanthropy a little later. Um, like a, a first question is how much is enough? Yeah. It's a simple question. Right. Uh, for someone that needs to put a roof over their heads and take care of their kids, well, then I need enough to do that. Once you've got enough to take care of your basic needs, there's a very important question that needs to be asked is, well, what are you doing with the rest and why are you accumulating more? What will you do with it? What matters about it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny too. It depends how much um, you're raised, uh, where you go to school. like. It's kind of an awkward subject, right? Like what do you do with money? And so sometimes, uh, especially in my life, I feel like very un- unequipped <laughs> to deal with money. Uh, and at best, it's kind of like, yeah, you can sit with a financial advisor, right? And they tell you how much you need to save to live. And it's like, well, that's a different conversation to like, what's my purpose or how do I use money in my life to live out my values? I mean, increasingly those conversations I think are happening and people like they you are. are leading the charge and writing books. But, you know, growing up, especially it's like, those are foreign conversations and all of a sudden, you know, you're in mid thirties, you start having some money. You're like, what do I do <laughs> right. besides just live? Right. Uh, I think a lot of people are asking that question. It's one of the great taboos that uh, remains in society. We've kind of, <laughs> what have we done? We've, uh, we've turned sex and sexuality into a commodity and into a kind of debased <laughs> product Mm. Uh, we can talk about that. You know, that, that's, that's a topic that people are comfortable with, but money is, it's very touchy. Yeah. My, my, uh, my parents are marriage educators and teachers and they say the mm. two biggest things that they see in, on almost every marriage is sex and money. Those are the two biggest things. And I think it applies to society too. If you look at the things that are really, um, holding us back or really taboo or really problematic, it is, it has a lot to do with sex and gender and money. Um, Wow, we are getting all all over the place here. Uh, big stuff. Um, let, let me rein it back in a little bit and talk more specifically about the work that you do uh, with renewal funds, uh, among other things. But it's a mission venture capital firm. So, can you talk a little bit more about like mission venture ca- venture capital and impact investing? Are those two things the same? Can you kind of define them for us? Because I, I think that's an interesting subject that I'd love to ask you more about. I think they are the same. They're a couple. I wanted some fresh language. Impact investing and terms like that, as they popularize, they start to get a bit stale mm-hmm. and they, they get bland. And uh, But the purpose of it is that you're investing to try to do something positive for society or ecology. Gotcha. So that's the simple definition. And it generally, generally relates to uh, – well, I guess these days it does relate also to your stock portfolios and – and those kinds of things, um, it's got become it's gotten broader and broader in the use. And I think what it means is clean money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, it's it's a desire to clean up your money and do something that's more meaningful with it. What was the other part of the uh, just mission venture capital? Mission venture capital, yes. So venture capital is a crucial part of the financial system, and it's it's the ri- the large risk money that helps entrepreneurs with good ideas succeed. They've got, to, they've got to get backing. And and for taking large risk, venture capitalists take large returns. Uh, venture capital usually works with someone who is a financial manager like ourselves, the group uh, 
renewal funds that uh, I work with. And we assemble money from other people or organizations. And then we're tasked for a fee to go out and find great companies to invest in. So that's venture capital in general. Mission venture capital was a way to cause somebody to take a moment and think Hmm. and to keep us with a a North Star to guide us with that before we're going to invest in a company, we want to understand the product and service and that it is definitely going to improve something that matters Hmm. and that the entrepreneur and the team actually care and that they'll stick with those values as they build a company. Now, it happens that 30 years ago when I started experimenting in these fields, the financial world looked at it very cynically because the purpose of money had become simply to make more money regardless of what the impact was on other people or places. But what's happened over these last 30 years is there are major industries that have grown out of that. Uh, Easy, low-hanging fruit would be, okay, renewables – versus an expendable resource that's causing really serious side effects. Mm-hmm. Renewables have their side effects as well, but they're, uh, man- they're, you know, our job now is to manage those better and better, but they do less harm to the uh, climate, and climate is uh, clearly becoming a, a major issue. In food, which is how I got into it, mm. I said I was diagnosed with a kidney disease. Did I? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was diagnosed with kidney disease and that caused me to think about what am I putting in my body? The kidney cleans the blood. Well, what's in all these food products and what do those words on the labels mean? I don't know what they are. Are they helping me? Are they hurting me? Um, And so that led me towards organic food and cleaner food. And so if you go through society, you look at household products, you look at cancer Mm -hmm. rates, you look at many, many things that are going on, you name your issue, you'll find that there's part of the economy that are doing that worse or doing it better. Mm -hmm. And my premise is that capitalism, business, and finance are powerful forces that can be used for good. Mm -hmm. And that's our job. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great difference. And I think the the food industry is probably the most uh, practical example for us average folk to see that change over the last 10 years. That's right. Right. The rise in just knowing where your food comes from and is it, you know, ethically raised and just seeing that kind of explosion in food is is indicative of kind of this movement towards, uh, yeah, maybe more like values-focused investment. Hey, everybody. Brady here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. Just wanted to make sure you knew about some free online training opportunities. If you go to courses.nextafter.com, you can see our free courses where you can learn about things like fundraising optimization, donation and landing pages, or Facebook advertising with more courses to come. Take them from your home or work or on vacation. Actually, don't take them on vacation. Just be on vacation. The point is you can take them wherever you want, whenever you want. They're based on all of our research studies and case studies, so things that are actually been proven to work. Anyways, if you're looking to go a little bit deeper on your online fundraising and digital marketing, feel free to check those out for free at courses.nextafter.com. Back to the show. Have you found it harder 
to to take this kind of missional approach when looking to invest because you know you have to um, have more qualifiers or do some more digging, or is it kind of easier because you can just disqualify so many people and you're just you know what you're looking for instead of just we got to make money. It's like no, no, we need to make money, but you know you've got some more criteria. Is it harder, easier, some combo? Sure, all of the above. <laughs> but the easier the easier part you just you just named one of the very important ones is. You can rem- you can eliminate a lot of things right off the bat. Hmm. Uh, do I want to have a better? Uh, well, I won't. I won't. I just say you you can you got a good screen there. Is this something I believe in? Is it something I want to see in the world? Do I actually care about the product and service? Mm-hmm. And while I stand behind it, so that's good. Um, well, I just mentioned that this is turned in. These are turning into significant industries. So lots of money is being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, our job is to make money for our investors, do it in a so-called cleaner way, but mm-hmm. do, it, do it in a way that more aligns with values, uh, mission, and meaning, and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's harder in that the criteria – there's more criteria. Right. Due diligence and deciding if a company – you're going to bet on a company is a hard thing to do. That's why you get paid – what you get paid, dollars yeah. <laughs> you get paid to do it. Sure. And, and it's a lot of, it's stressful and, and there's plenty of risk involved. So you're always looking to eliminate risk. Well, today, if you add the standards of uh, environmental regulations or pollution or uh, poor employment practices, how am I mm-hmm. going to retain employees? How's a company, how's a company going to stand up as a citizen as more and more transparency mm-hmm. and a, a smarter consumer comes around, a smarter employee comes around and there, there are issues now that science is uh, showing us that uh, we could get away with ignoring in the past, but we can't anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so it becomes an advantage, but it is harder because you got to screen through and you got to decide how far to go. Right. Nothing is perfect. None of this is about perfect. It's about improving and steadily improving. So we have to use extra tools. We have to do extra due diligence. Uh, we use some rating standards that we put on ourselves, like B Corporation and, mm-hmm. and uh, tools like One Percent for the Planet. Mm-hmm. And um, we're 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 looking to pull out what is the best of a sector, not what's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you've kind of like learned along the way, or maybe uh, you know, not like a venture capitalist, but like an average investor or something like that? What's something that they can maybe learn or look for if they're looking to invest some of their money with a more missional mindset? So, I hope this analogy works, but it took over a hundred years to end slavery in North America. Hmm. Um, there are things happening with our money. That includes slavery or slave-like work conditions. Mm-hmm. That include uh, major toxics that uh, other people's children have to live with, or damaging workers' bodies. There's all kinds of uh, really ugly things that can be behind uh, our money. So we're in a. It's going to take some years before the idea that money has to be clean or has to reach some standards before we're going to uh, feel okay with it. It's going to take a long time. So I've gotten to live through the earliest seeds of that, I think. Hmm. Uh, There was apartheid. There there was Vietnam War. There were some issues like that that were causing people to say, I don't want my money in that. Right. And so those were the early adopters. And then it became cigarettes and tobacco, uh, cigarettes and uh, alcohol and gambling and then 
guns and military. So, you, so as people wake up and they start asking questions, well, then I don't really like environmental pollution. I don't like soil degradation. I don't like, uh, you know, one thing after another. Right. That is a kind of spiritual awakening hmm. in my view. That is people realizing that they've been cut off from actually knowing what the source of that money is and what it's doing to other people and places under your name, under my name. Yeah. Uh, so I want my money representing me in the best way possible. Hmm. And so this is so this is a journey. I would say that we're past the beginning. Yeah. Uh, if you look across the financial landscape, products are being created rapidly because a market has awoken that wants these products, whether it's right. grocery shelves or financial products. So this will accelerate. It is accelerating, and it will rapidly shift the landscape of at least a large part of the economy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the last podcast that I that I had, I had a, a guy named Justin Dillon who worked for a company called Made in the Free World, and their their job was to basically look at end to end production um, and identify slave labor. That was occurring in each and every product from like your toothbrush to your toothpaste and they worked with the um, US government to identify those things and it's shocking. <laughs> it's really shocking and they had a tool where you could calculate like do you brush your teeth? You know, do you watch TV? And then it would calculate like, you know, you help support, you know, like 43 slaves based on these brands or what you use. You know, they've had it all the way down and it's it's a very awakening moment. To think like, oh, yeah, we're beyond slavery and, you know, I'm just buying toothpaste. But it's like uh, once you know, it's hard to shake that, <laughs> you know, it, right. it. and I think a lot of it is just, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, that awakening you're talking about, I think, first comes with a realization that this is actually going on. But we accepted not knowing mm. and it, it eased in slowly. Right, right, right. Back in the beginning, uh, I dried some fish and you had some salt. And we had to look at each other and make some kind of trade. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and, and things evolved in the printing press and industrial revolution and uh, modern technology uh, have some, of course, miracles and incredible value to all kinds of things that, in humanity. However, we were getting comfortable with not looking under the hood. Hmm. It was just, okay, this is nice. I like my toothpaste tube where does right. that tube end up where does right. that plastic lid end up uh how'd it get made you know and 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 something something about consumer society enabled us to offload any of that responsibility hmm. so transparency transparency and information now and the new entrepreneurs that are building products whose foundation is that they're doing less damage and they're more generative, hopefully, yeah, um, is is going to change this uh, steadily for many years to come. Yeah, and what I like about um, the what you've said so far is you've used the word like steadily and incremental and kind of journey because I I think that's part of the the challenge, right? Is you know you wear a sweater to some party and uh, someone just like rips on you because like, do you know, you know, that company where that sweater's made and then paints you as this horrible person. And is like, I had no idea. So we need to have some grace and like move Absolutely. forward incrementally, right? We have to have some patience with that too. Cause if it's just, 
you know, I read an article on NPR and now you, you wear that brand. So you're a terrible person. Like that's not helping anyone. (laughs) And that's what I'm worried when I look out and see a lot of this kind of really, uh, you know, polarization and there's a lot of anger and it's like, whoa, we got to chill out and move forward, you know, together. kind (laughs) of. You know, you're about to push us towards politics, but, uh, but I would say that, (laughs) uh, I won't go there, but I just, the polarization, Mm. the the polarization of uh, people, um, there are a lot of forces that create that, and a lot of them are consumer focused, and and they right. came from the selling of products, hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, making it making it glamorous for women to smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. um, making uh, guns uh, glamorous and make you feel powerful. Yeah, um, uh, you need a a newer refrigerator now because we've got some new features and yeah. and you go on and on the car buying. I mean, the, aren't we trading cars something like every three years now people are getting a new car hmm. uh, or people that can afford to are. So if you go through, like the thing that really got me aggravated was I was a teenage cigarette smoker mm-hmm. because I didn't know any better. And I grew up where it was cool. Yeah. Right. And I was getting, I was starting to, uh, People could hear me from a block away because they could recognize my cough. Hmm. And I was just 20 years old. Oh, no. And, and, and I started thinking about it and I was, okay, there's some guys in North Carolina sitting in a top floor of a boardroom in Charlotte. And they're just laughing at me <laughs> while I walk down the street lighting up another cigarette that they've put some chemicals they've known to add to the addictive qualities yeah. so they can make more money. Right. That really aggravated me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, think about it now. That's crazy. You know, every time I board a plane and it's like the no smoking is like, really? <laughs> you could smoke on a plane? <laughs> like that sounds insane. <laughs> I was alive for that, man. You get on an airplane and it was just a cloud of smoke. Yeah. That just seems, seems crazy. So again, you know, you see these examples like that took, that took years, but now, I mean, you go to a public, um, you know, restaurant and if someone is smoking even outside, it's like, what are you doing? You know, like so change, you know, does happen and it and it's uh, takes a little that's bit right. longer than than maybe we we would all like. So so that that's that's kind of like the the investing side. I want to shift over and talk a little bit about philanthropy because you've had a yeah. lot of you know philanthropic experience. And in your book, you actually talk about uh, unleashing philanthropy yeah. and how the philanthropic world is ready for a shakeup, uh, which I completely agree with. And now this is more in kind of my world or wheelhouse. But can can you just talk a little bit more about what what you mean about that shakeup or what you think unleashing philanthropy looks like? So religions. And probably uh, cultures and societies came up with practices that when you had more than enough, you gave some of it away. Mm-hmm. We're both in British Columbia. There's a coastal uh, indigenous practice of the potlatch, which was the sign of wealth was how much you ultimately you gave away a, a lot of stuff mm-hmm. to the whole community. And that was a that was how you got your kind of prestige and, mm-hmm. and power of your from your generosity. And so people who managed to end up with huge concentrations of wealth for one reason or another, maybe they were marauders and conquerors, <laughs> who, maybe they had a lot of slaves. Who, well, gradually, uh, people that did assemble wealth became those who could do things to, uh, you know, there were stories of people who at least fed their workers um, or, or gave them decent living conditions mm. and things like that. So the philanthropic impulse really comes from caring. It comes from love. 
I believe ultimately. Mm-hmm. We care uh, about the people and, and things around us. So long history unfolds. We get to modern taxation law and uh, philanthropic charitable law and things like that. And a lot of charity began as a tax break. Tax tax planning and tax break. Mm-hmm. And secondly, on the good intention that I would pass on to my children and my children's children, a vehicle to give back to the community that maybe they could share and participate in together. Yeah. So those are good, noble intentions. And meanwhile, religions are encouraging us to give 10% or give some amount. We go to church on Sunday. We, mm-hmm. we, we get generous. We, we give away something. And then Monday we go back out and forget all those values <laughs> and morals and we do whatever. Okay. So there's some of the background as I see it. And the charitable impulse is a really good thing. You care about someone, you, you love them in some way. You, you get them to the doctor. You, in all kinds of ways that we express this. But there is a legal, tax, and financial system that has built up around formal charity, and a whole set of incentives to uh, help you give away money. On the theory that, as we make government, uh, our attitude towards government and the fact that we don't want government to do everything, or we do want government to do everything for us. Mm-hmm. That's a long debate. <laughs> but but a lot of times, as government cuts back services, it will further incentivize the charitable sector to pick up some of the slack. Yeah. Or it will count on it. So there's a complex system out there. And uh, the charitable impulse in humans is, I think, basic to humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I'll... I think that's a, a good, a big, a big picture stuff, and I'll let you direct me from here again. <laughs> well, um, you know, most of our world is talking about like um, you know smaller donations, and I think a lot of your world yeah. has been maybe with larger donations. And yeah. you know, one particular thing in in your story that I found really fascinating is you're the executive director of a foundation that spent down the endowment. You took a yeah. strategic approach and said, "We're not going to live forever." We're going to get rid of this thing and live on, and that is becoming somewhat more common. But can you walk us through a little bit yeah. of uh, why you made that decision? And uh, let's start there because I think there's a lot of interesting things in that. So there are multi-billion-dollar foundations, and there's hundred million and ten million in every size of charitable foundation, which was a tax-driven method to. Uh, lock up money in charity that would then be given away. And there are rules that say you've got to give away, depending on the U.S. or Canada, I think right now it's 3.5% or 4.5% each side of the border differently. Um, that includes all your expenses that you do on your your own administration. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to give away much money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's meant to be pegged somewhat towards inflation um, and the idea is that you create this entity and it's around forever mm-hmm. and it goes out and invests in things generally that in my view are creating the problems that you want to solve with the earnings mm. from those investments. Hmm. In other words, you got a hundred million dollars, you got $1 million. It's invested in stocks and bonds and then you get to give away two hmm. or 3% of it each year right? or you're, you're required to give it away. Uh, I said that number because you also get to count your your administrative costs and Mm -hmm. legal and all that. So that model creates uh, long-term monolithic organizations. 
that are wonderful when they're wonderful, but a lot of them sit in desk drawers. They're used just for kind of social purposes. You get to buy tickets to the fancy fundraisers. You get to get your name on a hospital wall or Mm -hmm. a university building, things like that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a very limited, uh, it's very limited. It might be working in areas that government could be also uh, responsible to do. That's a different debate. Okay. So if you got with the $20 million that uh, Carol Newell, who I worked with had inherited and directed towards philanthropy, when you do the math on giving away four or 5% of that every year and having the 20 million stay there for forever, Mm -hmm. or you give away the money in larger amounts now, Mm -hmm. you're number one, you're dealing with problems in a much more potent way. We were, we were able with that 20 million to be the largest in funder, largest funder based in British Columbia of the environmental movement for a number of years. Wow. Now, if we, that's because we gave away one and a half, two million dollars a year instead of a few hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And we didn't just give it all away. <clears throat> we chose several important leave behind infrastructures or organizations to, to build. Yeah. One of those was a charitable organization called Tides Canada Foundation. Mm-hmm. And Tides Canada is in the business of selling services to help people give away money more effectively mm-hmm. and also to back individual charitable uh, organizations, mostly startups or early stage, and do a lot, bring them in as projects of tides or initiative of tides and take care, have constant uh, combined legal and accounting and bookkeeping and all kinds of services that take away that kind of pain point for small mm-hmm. nonprofits that are trying to do things. So that's an entity that today has uh, probably already given away, I don't know, $50 million. Uh, and it grows and grows and grows and it sells services. And it, it, it is a social enterprise in mm-hmm. that it makes a lot of the money for fees and services that uh, it later gives away. But it also provides services to larger players who, for example, right now, Tides is very involved in the Arctic and the north of Canada. Hmm. And with uh, polar ice melt, with military and exploitation uh, rushing in there, there's very few people looking after ecology and people Hmm. that that live there. So Tides is involved with a number of international uh, charitable foundations that are attempting to plant, to, to look out for that part of the changes going on in the north. So that's just one example. And, uh, we did that with several organizations, and we also chose to leave larger grants to what we considered important middle-sized organizations that we thought could have longevity. Mm-hmm. And we gave money without strings attached to it in the sense that we didn't make people uh, sell us a specific project. We gave general support. Mm. Here's the money. You go do what you know is best. Yeah. As a funder, do I know best? usually not right (laughs) the people that are out there doing the work do yeah so i could go on with the principles of how we did it but that just i've given you a good a decent amount of response to your question yeah well i think tying those two together like how do we unleash philanthropy and then your approach and taking a spend down i think part of it is saying what's the purpose of charitable funds it's not to sit in a bank and grow it's to have impact and change in the world and so a spend down approach is saying 
we can do more good now, right? We can chip away at education for kids under five and do a little bit and do a little bit and do a little bit. Or we can say, let's make sure that every kid under five gets a super quality education right now. And that impact further down the line is much greater than being around for 80 years. So I'm, I'm a big fan of more of that approach. And I think it's, uh, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of people who don't take that approach, but there are definitely some approaches that go, what's the purpose of your foundation? Is it to really make a difference in the world? Or do you just kind of want to be around for a while and have a job, (laughs) you know, and, and there's, that can be a a difference. And so I think that's one of the things with unleashing philanthropy and taking that more venture philanthropic approach of, we're going to give you a half a million dollars unrestricted, go do something special with it. Like that's what venture capital does. But often our form of venture capital in the charitable world says, we'll give you half a million dollars over three years. If you meet certain targets that only goes to this project and now the administration side just ramps up. So the funding it. mechanisms yeah. have just seen like what – like we do it so well here and then we kind of cross the chasm and then we do it pretty poorly in a lot of ways. And like why? Why do we do that? Brilliant business people who actually are entrepreneurial surprise me when they do this, <laughs> kind, of, do this kind of grant making. Yeah, totally. And they're more focused on how to b- double the size of the of the base right. of their of their base. Right. Make more money so I can give away more money. And the problem is, I, I mean, there's, that's that's a common statement. I'm gonna. By the way, I like to ask entrepreneurs that I'm investing in, what are you going to do when you're successful? Right. When you make a lot of money? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. Why do you want to make a lot of money? Do you know how much is enough? Mm. Ten million. Hundred million, right? And then what? And so the answer is generally, I, I think I'm going to give away a lot of money. Well, you often spend your career making money, and you're not that skilled at how to give it away. Mm-hmm. You're smart, and you can follow rules, and you you know you can right. But it's it's it, there's a lot of uh, there's just a lot of unfortunate culture around the concentration of money for philanthropy, and then how it actually gets deployed and. Who's benefiting and et cetera. Yeah, which is another reason why I think Tides is so cool. And, uh, you know, I mentioned I worked at a company called Chimp and, um, you know, kind of this concept of like philanthropic advisors, philanthropic brokers kind of of saying you're so good in this arena. You've made so much money and you want to give it away. Great. How do we get expertise now that actually knows, you know, which nonprofits or charities are good and how to best structure it? And like I think that's an emerging market and it's a huge need for sure of how do you kind of broker these deals that benefit charities and not hinder them or hurt them because that's not the point. And Chimp is using technology to make it easier, make it more accessible, make it available to mass market. And those are wonderful things. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot in there around uh, Unleashing Philanthropy. Maybe one one last question on the philanthropy side and then we'll start uh, wrapping up here. You've been very generous with your time. But do you have any tips for people, uh, you know, as you've gone and, and uh, given to organizations or supported nonprofits? Like, you know, everyone always asks, like, what do I look for? And obviously, I mean, my answer is don't look at overhead at all. I think it's a t- that's another subject that we could talk about. But like, what do you look for um, when you invest in nonprofits or charities or what are some things that you're looking for? It has a lot of similarities to investing. Hmm. Uh, first, I want to know who the people are and what yeah. they're about and what their skills are. Right. I'm investing in people often. Uh, that's that's at least I, I, if they don't have people that I can back, it's harder to want to write a check to any organization, charitable yeah. or for profit. So that's number one. Hmm. Number two is, well, the place. Do, do I care about what they care about? Hmm. 
does this align with what matters to me? Right. Um, helping make, helping women learn how to use firearms as a charitable activity. I don't, <laughs> not I'm your not, wheelhouse. I'm not there. I'm not there. Uh, helping people learn how to have job skills so that they can do better with employment interviews. I like that. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I can go through the list. So, so what is the actual mission and purpose? Who are the people involved? Does it matter? And then if you want to go deeper, uh, you know, you look at the context, the, the ecosystem around it. Uh, a lot of things uh, here in Vancouver, the downtown east side, a lot of social ills have been warehoused here over time because other neighborhoods won't accept the, the nonprofits and the mm-hmm. shelters and things like that. And people will look at it and go, oh, well, those people, they just don't work hard enough mm. you know, or things like that. Mm. And then they start to research it and they find out that the uh, uh, you know, that, that, that a government agent, a, a government, whatever scale of it, just decided to eliminate mental health services or cut in half mental health services mm-hmm. and throw people out on the streets. Uh, you know, a senior level of government might do that and and or you know or not enforce uh, codes violations on uh, landlords that are treating people really badly. So you, so you start to find out that there's structural issues, there are policy issues, mm. and there are bigger decisions that are being made. It's not about just people being lazy or not good enough mm. or self indulgent. There are structural things that happen in society. So I like to look at that kind of philanthropy more than I want to. Just it, rather than to feed somebody that's hungry, which of course I'm going to do to mm-hmm. at some level, I want to know why the uh, system makes it so that people would end up that way. Yeah, and 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 that's much more interesting to me. So that's another thing. I you know, if you're doing serious amounts of philanthropy, if you're doing small amounts, follow your heart. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good advice. I mean. That you know, giving begets giving, and I think we can get so fo- you know, you're giving away a hundred dollars, and now you're scrutinizing annual reports. And I think the vast, vast majority of charities are doing really good work, some better than others, but the vast majority of them are doing good work. And if you're passionate and care about one, give to it and follow. Do you like what they communicate back to you? Do you feel like you're connected? Then great. If not, then maybe give a hundred bucks to another organization, but you maybe, know? maybe join the board and <laughs> yeah, right and steer it you know? better. Um, And then back to your your other kind of point on the context, I think think that's really interesting too. And uh, one thing that I've been talking about for years is like, you know, these charitable mutual funds where you can take an approach like uh, food. Now you can have a short-term mix and a long-term mix. So short-term, we got to get good food in the hands of people because they're starving. But if that's all you invest in, you're never going to solve the problem. So, you know, what are some longer-term investments to actually, you know, overturn the ecosystem so that there's sustainable food and things like that. I think that's what's so neat is people like you are starting to think about, you know, this a lot more deeply and a lot more seriously and carrying over, you know, the mindset of investing um, in in capital to philanthropy, which is great. (laughs) I think that's what we need. And like you and hopefully (laughs) all of our listeners here. And I I just want to – a story comes to me about uh, food banks in general, but the food bank in Vancouver is doing this also. So they're looking at food waste. There's a tremendous amount of food mm. that just goes to waste mm-hmm. because it, the distribution system or the ability to buy it or all kinds of other reasons goes massive amounts. It'll scare you if you look into the f- figures. So places like food banks are starting to look at, well, why don't we create some products like healthy soup? Hmm. And so they're working on that here in Vancouver. 
and maybe we'll make that soup attractive to our regular consumers as well. Hmm. And we'll sell it, and then we can raise money for our food bank activities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this this kind of venture uh, activity among uh, the nonprofits, we'll build affordable housing. Hmm. We're going to go into the affordable housing business. We're going to uh, we're going to train people how to. Uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. That's yeah. That's enough. Examples. I, again, that's I think that's what's so cool is these different you know models. And clearly, what we're doing isn't. I mean, it's working to a degree, but it's not working like gangbusters. So let's try some different approaches, both to our philanthropy right. and our services, uh, which is great. So thank you so much for for taking so much time and talking about your experiences and investing in philanthropy. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I know our listeners will as well. Um, where can people learn about uh, you and your work and your book? Okay. Uh, the mission venture capital firm is <laughs> Renewal Funds, renewalfunds.com. The book and more about my work and lots of podcast recordings and uh, <laughs> things like that is joelsolomon.org. Joelsolomon.org. Great. We'll be sure to send that out in the uh, show notes as well. So thank you so much, Joel. You're so welcome. I really enjoyed it. Hey, Brady, again, I hope you enjoyed that chat uh, with Joel talking about both the investing side and the philanthropy side and how we use money. Um, A couple of things that really stood out to me in that conversation was how much he focused on people. I know in our world, in the fundraising world, we often talk about people give to people, not, you know, fundraising machines. And it's a common thread if, you know, they're looking to invest millions of dollars in uh, entrepreneurs, they're looking at the person. Do they have the skills and talent, but do they believe in what they're doing? And it's the same thing on the philanthropic side. Does does this person or this team, do they have the skills? Yes, but do they believe? And I think that's really important because um, sometimes we can devalue the impact of the person. We focus on the project uh, or the product or something like that. But it's really about the person. And if you're really committed, really passionate, and that comes through in what you're doing, and of course you need skills and abilities, um, that's, a, that's a great way to get funding and to grow your cause. Um, and so if you're not fired up about the work that you're doing, then it's going to be really hard to get donors fired up, whether that's meeting with them over coffee or writing emails. I think that comes through a lot. And so, um, you know, being personally invested in the organization you're working for and being fired up is a great way to actually grow <laughs> fundraising. I think it was interesting too, just, um, you know, how their approach to the spend down actually created something like Tides Canada or a different kind of organization that has actually given away even more money and has lasted even longer. And so even if the goal is to kind of, you know, long, have longevity, um, you know, just maintaining uh, a public foundation and giving away your 5%, 4%, maybe isn't even the best way to achieve longevity. So I think there's a lot of questions that we should be asking about how we go about charitable giving, whether it's giving away hundreds of millions of dollars uh, through public foundations or whether we're just giving $100 away. uh, How how are we focused on giving that money away? So anyways, I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation with Joel and found some interesting things that you can apply to your own charitable giving or your own investment, or maybe you'll think more critically about that uh, that piece of uh, seafood you're about to eat. Uh, anyways, uh, thanks again for listening to the show and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever. 
you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.